go. My name is Todd. This is Gabby. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 694. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, Kathy is going to share something that she learned in the uh, autobiography about Prince Harry. Yeah, Prince Harry's memoir. His memoir. That's how you pronounce and that. And I'm not going to share like gossip from it. I'm going to share something uh, that I learned from yeah, him. A teaching piece. Yeah. Uh, but first, a few housekeeping notes. Um, we have this thing called Team Zen Circle. At least that's what I'm calling it today. Team Zen Circle. No, I think that's. I think we're landing on it. Is that where we're going? Because that is the name of the app. It's called Team Zen Circle. So let's keep it. We've been, we've been doing it a long time. I just want to share a few quick things. It's, um, it's an online platform. Uh, all Everything Kathy and I do is on this platform, either on your laptop or on your phone. It's an actual an app. app. Mm-hmm. So you can be mobile and be as plugged in with everything that's going on. Uh, so let me give some examples of what's on it. All of our Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, all of our pop culturing podcasts, all of my Zen Parenting moments, all of our special guests that we've had, um, classes that we've taught previously, virtual conferences that we've done before, plus all the live stuff that we're doing, all of our interactive communities, micro communities, including a women's circle that I'm starting. Um, so it's like everything in one place. And it, not only do you have access to that stuff, you have access to each other because it's a virtual community of, in, you know, in, international virtual community. So, And within that community is, are these micro communities. And we have four of them going right now, Raising Healthy Sons, Differently Wired Kids, Separation Divorce, and Loved Ones Dealing with Addiction. So those are like communities within the community. And then the women's group, that starts in February. And we also have Dr. Shafali Sabari joining our Team Zen for a Zen Talk. So we have something called, I still call it Team Zen Presents. Todd doesn't like that, but basically we have a... um, a guest every month, like a friend or uh, author or thought leader in this area of parenting or self-awareness or mindfulness or whatever it may be. And they come do a Q&A with everybody in Team Zen. And this month is Shafali. So if you're interested in being on the team, uh, it's 25 bucks a month. You can cancel at any time. So I hope you decide to join us. Jump in. Love to see you. Um, and then I also, <clears throat> excuse me, want to talk about Kathy's Zen Parenting Moment, and it's called Rocks. It's something Kathy writes a little bit every Friday, and um, you can subscribe by just scrolling in the show notes. But this one was called Rocks, and you always start with a quote, and the quote is this, a woman who will be like a rock in a riverbed, enduring without complaint her grace, not sullied, but not sullied, but shaped by the turbulence that washes over here over her. That's a terrible reading. <laughs> Not as well as the author said it, um, the Why, what ensues in the Zen parenting moment? So basically it's just about how we are, rocks are symbolic of just human experience, okay? Because when, so a rock is shaped by time, by water, by the elements, and then it becomes the rock that it's going to become. You know, it started as probably a piece of a bigger, you know, mountain or bigger stone or something, but then it gets chipped away and then it be it gets shaped and formed and oftentimes is Todd and I really like rocks and for those of you who love rocks, they become really beautiful and smooth and very perfectly round and just them living in the world makes them become who they are. And 
as we know, the elements are not always fun. <laughs> you know, being submerged in water or being hit by hail or rain or whatever, it's not always fun, but it helps shape us. So it's obviously a, a metaphor for human experience. There you go. And, um, that, and that you can go pick up a rock and carry it in your pocket to remind I do that. You. I do that often. Yeah. Um, for my quick take, I just want to share... Um, I I saw this uh, blog mm-hmm. and it's from the ladies at Grown and Flown. Yeah, didn't we have them on our we podcast? We did. We had them on. Mm-hmm. Talk? And it was about Lisa Demore. Lisa Demore, who is somebody I've always appreciated. Never had her on the podcast. I would love to have her on the podcast at some point. Um, and the women at Grown and Flown summarized six ways to encourage deeper conversations with teenage boys. Okay, I'm just going to rip through them real quick. You sure. give me one sentence on each one, maybe. Sure. So, so if you have any teenage boys, this might be helpful. We don't. We have three girls. But even our daughters need to know what it's like to live in boy world in the same way that boys need to know what it's like to live in girl world. Before you start, can I tell you something funny? Sure. That will be like a, you know, is there is something on TikTok right now where it'll be like a parent and it'll say, um, inspiring texts from my teenage son. Mm-hmm. And then these words will come up and it'll say, yes, no, yeah. IDK, burrito. Mm-hmm. Like there's no more content than just an answer. Yeah. And it always makes me laugh because you know what's coming, but then just to see it written is funny. Yeah. Uh, number one, show that men talk about feelings too. And they go on to say much of the emotional work at home is done by mothers. And research shows that kids assume that if they go to their mom with a problem, she'll talk with them about how they feel. But if they go to their dad, he'll talk to them about how to fix it. So mm. this is a calling out to all the dads out there. Don't fix your son's problems. Instead, listen and validate and... Um, show emotions, which is... Or allow them to have emotions. I I know you're saying role modeling, yeah. but I think the, the acknowledging and affirming, mm-hmm. you know, if the son comes to his uh, father and says, I'm struggling because a friend's not being very kind to me, I'm feeling left out, I'm feeling lonely, that the dad's not like, well, buck up, mm-hmm. you know, go blah, blah, blah. Instead, it's like, yeah, I can understand why you'd feel lonely. Yeah. Like acknowledge and affirm. It's like empathy 101. Yeah. Uh, number two, ask indirect questions. With younger kids, it can be very helpful to articulate for them how they're likely feeling. I can see you're very frustrated. But teenagers who are defined by their wish for self-determination don't want their parents to tell them how they're feeling. Truth. Uh, and they go, so I wonder what they mean by indirect questions. Let me see. Well, I would say, I think when we say things to kids like, oh, you're just tired. Or, oh my gosh, you're so mad. And we are telling them about themselves it can feel really, um, uh, like even if they are feeling angry, don't tell me who I am. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You don't know what's going on inside of me. It's that kind. I think it it puts them in a defensive posture. Where indirect questions are, what do you think you're feeling? Is are you more sad? Are you more angry? So you're not telling them. You're asking. Demore suggests trying an effective technique that therapists often use. Instead of putting them on the spot, engage in a more general way. At home, this can take the form of asking. What are people saying about what happened at the party? Or what's the temperature right now about finals? Um, Or I remember this was a tough time for your brother last year saying anyone in your shoes would be upset. I think that, you know, I'm thinking, I, I don't know when there's ever a time to not ask indirect questions. And I don't just mean to children. I mean to anybody. I don't think we ever really know how somebody's feeling. And I think the best way to gauge something, like the the stance I always take when I talk to my girls about something that may be kind of loaded is I don't act like I know everything. 
I ask questions and I'm kind of removed. Like it, I'll be like cleaning the kitchen, like I'm only half interested. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds like a game, but if I'm too like, what do they say? What do they do? Then my then not just my girls, but all kids are like, relax, mom. Yeah. You know, I'm not gonna get you in on the gossip here. Yeah. So but if you act like you're not you're kind of above it, you're mm-hmm. kind of like, well tell me, what do they think? And you it, I think it gives them a feeling of safety. For Don't sure. you feel like when parents get too into the gossip, it's really gross? Well, you don't talk to me about gossip. Bless mm-hmm. my mom who passed away, but she was into presenting things she heard about what happened at a party I was at, mm-hmm. and it just annoyed the crap out of me. So I know. I used to... There was a woman I used to see... Um, she, I, well, I don't want to explain too much because you know people who know me would know who this is, but there would always be questions about I was like 18 at the time and there would be questions about my high school friends who's dating who who's doing this and I'm like wow this like she was probably 35 or 40 at the time I'm like this person is way too interested Mm -hmm. in what young kids are doing and kind of get a life you know what I mean like where why aren't you more concerned about what you're doing rather than us number three normalize intense emotions so think of your son having a breakup and it's a really intense sadness just normalize it like this is what happens right yeah or it's so hard Mm -hmm. or you know how can I support you I so see even if you can't remember what I will say is that you know sometimes I can really bring up feelings from high school and if you've never had it before you don't know it's going to end and if you've never had it before, you think no one else understands. Mm-hmm. There's just no way around that, you know? And so for us to be like, oh, like it'll go away or everybody feels this way, that doesn't help. Yeah. Number four, appreciate alternatives to talking. Um, so she says, parents often assume that if their son is in emotional pain, the best or only solution is for him to talk about how he's feeling. You may be worried that he's going to do something drastic, that all his emotions are bottled up and they're going to come out destructively. Instead... Having a discussion can make a kid feel worse. Instead, Dr. Nemore suggests offering comfort, such as bringing the dog with you in the car if you think he may have bombed a test or offering to make his favorite food. So in other words, it's not always about talking. Well, and this comes up a lot with parents will say to me, I know I'm supposed to connect with my kid, but every time I try and bring things up, they don't want to talk and I, and I just need to hear... And the thing is, is connection is not always about your kid telling you everything. Connection is, a, is do they feel safe with you? Do they feel like they can sit in your presence? Do they feel like you are doing your best to be supportive rather than overly inquisitive? So connection is not always my kid sits and tells me everything. I don't know about you, Todd, but I don't want my kid to tell me everything. Right. I want my kid to have a life where they have lots of people and that they know they can come to me or be in our home in a safe way. And that we would do something like that. Like, hey, it, today was kind of long, huh? Do you want to watch a show tonight? You know, do you want to like go out to dinner? Do you want to? And we don't need all the info. Right. We just want to be supportive. Number five, embrace texting. Does it get much more simple yeah, than that? I'm a big texter with my kids. Yeah. It's their language. Yeah. And an intense conversation across the kitchen table is pretty intense. Tell, say what uh, JC said this weekend. Cameron? Uh, I don't remember. Oh, it was really sweet. So JC came home this weekend because my mom's service was this weekend. And uh, 
um, she, we were sitting around the table. We went out to brunch yesterday, and we were talking about Cameron leaving for college. And I was, you know, giving her a hug. We kind of joke. It, we're not joking because we are sad, but we right now we're working in in humor because mm-hmm. you know Cameron will be like, yeah, I'm gonna fly away. Um, and JC said, okay, Cam, get ready. Dad is going to text you like every day. Oh, yeah, that's right. And we kind of laughed. And she goes, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Because all all Todd writes is... All I write is four words. I love I love Birdie. I love the bird. I love the bird. So yeah. that's a nickname that, I don't know, somebody came up with that stuck. So yeah, whenever I think of her, I just text. I love the bird. Boom. And I, that's it. Like nothing mm-hmm. more. Like not. He's how's not your, like how was your day? Yeah, yeah. none of that. Mm-hmm. And it's just my way of saying I'm thinking about you. Yeah. So yeah, she gets those texts a lot. Yeah. She's like, so okay, I'm getting. And red. sometimes I'm like, wow, I feel like I'm favoring JC, but no, she deserves favoritism because she doesn't live in this house. Well, and, and I get to see my. So when my other kid goes, I'll be texting her. Well, it's not favoritism. You see her. Well, you just said this. I'm repeating, but you're talking to your other children yeah. every morning. I get to have dinner yeah, with them. every night. So last but not least, this is a good one. Okay. And this is a really big self-awareness practice that I think I can use and I think most people use. Don't take bad moods personally. Oh, for sure. Can we just create some space to let somebody have a crappy day? The problem is when they have a crappy day, it can make my day crappy. It can. So my work is to be like, oh, my kid's having a crappy day. And can I just hold that space without trying to say, what's wrong? How come? Blah, blah, blah. And and I have sometimes in the past just like been like, fine, if you're going to be in a bad mood, then I'm going to be like passive aggressive in a bad mood. And not to be like superficial, but I could still be in a good mood when somebody else is in a bad mood. Of course, with respect for their experience, meaning you're not going to like crank up music and dance around them when right. they're in a bad mood because that's almost passive aggressive in a way. Right. That's like I'm I'm doing you know, I'm having a better day than you. Mm-hmm. Um I think and again my girls are older, so I want to make sure I, I say to people that there's been a lot of building up to this point that this isn't something this is something that some foundation has to be laid till we get here. But first of all, our girls or our children should go in and out of different moods because that's what human beings do. So if your kids are coming home the exact same way, fine, good, whatever. They're probably not telling you. They're not sharing their life experience with you. So the expectation that they should always be in a good mood is kind of silly. The other thing is, is what I have noticed um, with all three, um, I think JC probably struggles with it the most, not because she doesn't know how to do it, but because she, um, really loves being with people, so sometimes won't take the time for herself. But one thing I've appreciated about the, my girls is that they know how, when they're in a bad mood, what to do. And what I mean is, you know, like just to give examples, like, you know, one of my daughters knows that she needs to take a bath and she needs to get a good book and she needs to light a candle in her room and she may need to call one of two people who are really important to her. Like they have this like rhythm, same with Cameron, like where they're like, it was a tough day. So I'm going to do a, B and C and the, and the a, B and C are not like go out and party or go buy a bunch of stuff. They're kind of like, I'm going to relax. I may be behind my, or in my room. Um, or I may need, you know, can, you know, can we do something tonight? You know, it's that kind of stuff. Like they kind of know, how to monitor it. Well, and I think the most important thing is it says don't take bad moods personally. Like, that's it. Like, I sometimes take it personally. Like, this is um, directed towards me when it's not. 
They had a crappy day that had nothing to do with me. Yet we as parents, or I as a parent, sometimes be like, what did I do wrong? And it has nothing to do with me. It's interesting. You're right. Like just to go on this is that it's kind of a bit of, I'm going to use a clinical word that may not always be the case, but is enmeshment where if we're way too enmeshed with our kids' experiences, then we kind of feel like their bad mood is either our fault or we feel like we have to fix it. Mm. There's like an overlap where we don't see where they end and we begin and vice versa. I think we do this with our partners too. I think that we do this with our parents when we were young, you know, like if you're, if, if I'm not in a good mood, then you, then the first thought is what did I do wrong? Sure. Don't, do you feel like that sometimes? For sure. I think it's a survival mechanism. Yeah. Like I want to be connected to you, my wife. And if you are, if I judge that you are not, you know, in a good place, I'm first going to be like, what did I do wrong? Like, I think that's very normal. And then it takes me a okay, breathe. Did I do something wrong or could I have showed up differently? And sometimes the answer is yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then I need to go in and try to empathize and connect. But if the answer is no, then can I just let you have your experience without me coming in to try to rescue you from it? Yeah. I think the thing, gosh, there's so many ways we could go here because I'm thinking about so many questions we've gotten lately on Team Zen. Like a lot of times when our kids are upset, it bothers us. We want to fix it because we're uncomfortable with it when really the best thing we could do to build connection is allow for that discomfort and our, well, I'll go back to the other ones, indirect questions about it where we're not that concerned about it. Because I think when we're too concerned about our kids being happy all the time, our kids think any other emotion is not okay. Is not okay. And even if they know there's no way I I'm not going to not be sad. They're just, they're definitely not going to do it around us yeah. because of the way we react and respond to it. So I think that the ability to have some things we do, like when a kid comes home and is like, oh, it was such a tough day. And to be like, oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. That sucks. And do you want to share it now or do you want to talk about it later? Um, you know, and, and sometimes they don't. And But to be that open space and then to continue on mm-hmm. as if that you're not so overwhelmingly concerned. This is connected to the other things where like going up to the room and knocking on their door 10 times and going, tell me what happened. Mm-hmm. Just oh my God. creates How more annoying. anxiety. How annoying. Exactly. And the ability to be like, I'm here but I don't need anything from you. I'm available, but you don't have to take me up on it. That's That's that subtle difference of, but I think that if we haven't worked that out ourselves with our partners, with our friends, if we don't know how to manage conflict well with adults, then we don't know how to manage conflict. And I'm not even saying we're in conflict with our kid, but their defensiveness or their upsetness or their discomfort feels like conflict, don't under- you think? I do. And uh, I, I'm so appreciative to the Grown and Flown ladies and Lisa Damore for um, putting this together. And I, I would rewrite the title of this article. Two. The article is Six Ways to Encourage Deeper Conversations with Teenage Boys. I think it should be Six Ways to Encourage Deeper Conversations with People. Like there's really nothing specific about teenage boys. It's not about boys, boys, yeah. Even though maybe we'll call, maybe the title of this podcast will be that. Yeah. Because I think people are always looking for ways to communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing we learn, if we may not be encouraged to click on an article that says conversations with people, because Mm -hmm. we'll be like, "Ah, I've heard it all before. But if we're in conflict or we're struggling to talk to our teenage boy and it says 
how to talk to a teenage boy, we click on it and it's not really clickbait because you're still getting the same answers. Sure. But what you recognize is that it's universal principles. Yeah. And this is the thing, like it doesn't matter, you know, your kid's gender when you're connecting. Obviously there's some things to keep in mind, mm-hmm. you know, their interests, you know, where they are in their lives. Like it's not that it's not a piece of it at all, but to your point, Todd, it's just human beings. Yeah. Like what do you, you know, human beings don't want people to be chronically worried about them. They also don't want to be completely bothered. And they also don't want people to not care at all. So you're always trying to find this like balance. balance. And and again, how does this begin? Where are you? Yeah. And what are you worried about? Like, I think the only times that I'm thinking you and I have really struggled with this is if we're unclear. Mm-hmm. Like what if one of our kids, if we're like, what is going on there? And eventually it comes out in some way, like there's been something going on with a friend or they didn't want to, you know, they're worried about something that they, what's so interesting about kid worries is usually, or teenage worries is usually when they're able to share them in some form, we can really not say don't worry about that because that doesn't help, but really help them break it down and they realize it's not really concerning. Sure. Like they're making up a story in, in their mind yeah. because they don't have the information about what comes next. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah, they're just starting out. They're just starting out, and they don't like as adults. We've gone through the same thing so many times that we have like a a well worn path. And think about how often we screw up as adults to ask our kids to be emotionally aware, emotionally intelligent, emotional emotionally agile like it's just a lot to ask so like i know one of my kids this weekend we she had to be around a lot of adults and had to have a lot of conversations with people because we had so many uh service oriented things um and i what i loved kind of debriefing with them afterwards is is one of my kids kept saying okay, this person, I loved the way that they talked to me and they were so calm. And then they'd be like, and then I was talking with this person and I love the questions they asked me. And what I love is our kids are learning how to be by having interactions with people that are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Where like, you know, I the demeanor of this person, I really want to emulate that. The questions of this person, I really want to emulate that. So their ability to be surrounded by not just us as parents, but other people who care about them or who are interested or who are not emotionally unhealthy. I mean, you know, they're always going to have that experience. That's just a given (laughs) if you're in high school. Um, But I just found it really interesting that they were like absorbing like, ooh, like it was content. Like, ooh, this is a, I like the way they talk to me. And and then that's what they start to pull in. Yeah. Well, it starts with what you just said a few minutes ago is where are you? Like it's self-awareness, which which is one of the foundations of our podcast. It's our ability to regulate ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the only way we regulate uh, ourselves is if we know where we are. And if we're in this kind of like survival you know, we, our ego just got damaged and we're trying to survive, we're probably not going to be able to connect with whoever's in front of us very well. So first step is just knowing where we are. And then after that, maybe you can shift or maybe you can't, but it's about self-awareness. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And realizing maybe there's a day, like there are times when my children are struggling with something and maybe it's later in the day and I'm like, I'm going to have to tackle this one tomorrow if there is something I'm supposed to do. Because I know if I try and take this on at 8.30 PM, I we're going to get into a deeper hole. Sure. So sometimes we got to sleep on it. Sometimes we have to... And sometimes things like, especially, I, especially in high school... Sometimes something that feels like a tragedy one day, the next day they're not even 
thinking about. Mm -hmm. So I also sometimes think time is important. Um, if something seems to be chronic or ongoing, then obviously, but it's interesting how they're, they're emotional. You know, you're talking about regulation. They're not fully regulated yet. They're no. just learning how to regulate. Sure. So sometimes something that I'm just thinking about a story and we'll, we won't specify what the story was, but when one of our daughters was just sobbing mm -hmm. about something and we were like, whoa, this is a big deal. And then like a couple of days later, we learned what it was and mm -hmm. it was like, not at all. Well, but to her in the moment, it was. So I'm not putting her down. I'm just saying we needed to give it time. Well, and our college-age daughter has a lot going on. Sorority, school, friends, work. and work. And, um, you know, my invitation to her is like, you know, if you look back on this, it's not going to be that big of a deal. And what's funny about that is it's so easy for me to invite her to think about things like that. Yet all the things that I get jacked up over... If They're I really had to, those aren't a big deal either. Mm -hmm. So it's just one of those things. It's so it's so easy to see somebody else's challenges and not see our own. Well, and and for a fifty-year-old man to say to a nineteen-year-old girl, the things you're going through right now aren't really any big deal. You can have this perspective of you're going to see in the next couple of years. You won't even remember this. But how do they know that? And yeah. is that completely true? Yeah. Like it's not true all the time. So mm -hmm. you do need to focus in these areas. But we just have this bigger picture. But you and I talk about this all the time. I mean, last week I brought this up. Like, you know, do we is I always feel when Todd and I have like a a crisis or a change in life, you know, and, and something happens, it's an opportunity to kind of sit for a second and say, is there anything that we're doing right now that we really don't want to? Mm -hmm. Or is there any way that we can shift something and make sure that we're on the right... Reprioritize. Reprioritize. Re, it's kind of like looking at your game plan again and going, okay, is this still our game plan? And I think that that is helpful. I think we do that in every stage of life. I think five-year-olds do that. Yeah. You know, like, is this the game plan? Is this what I want to do? And... um and to help our kids realize that it's not supposed to be a linear path, right. that every once in a while you have to like rework the plan. Mm. And can we, so Todd, this gets into, this is big with with parents, especially of teenagers, are we open to them reworking the plan? Yeah. Because we may, we may have a plan. For them. For them. Like I was just talking with somebody this weekend and they have this family, they have a son and he's a swimmer. And he has, like, he was swimming his whole life in high school, and it was hard for the family, like, meaning, like, there were, so, there were swim meets and their life was all rearranged, but the whole story was this this guy's got to be a swimmer because this is how he's going to get to college. Yeah, this well, is the plan. And guess what? He went to college and he left after the first year. Yeah, all that work. All that work, and, and that's okay. He's going to be fine, I'm sure, but sometimes we do things for this purpose that doesn't even come to be. Mm -hmm. And so someone say, well, then what do I do? What works now? How do we shift now? What does this kid need now? Instead of we're going to suffer because of four years from now. Right. And there might be a little mix of it. Like, I know we have to save money. I, you know, I'm not talking about free for all. I'm talking about like, if a kid is done with swimming and they they're like, you know, I'd kind of like to try art or photography or theater, like allow that shifting mm -hmm. because you never know how that will, you know, your ideal in your head of that we've got to stick with this one thing because it's the only way. How do you know that? Yeah. Like that's a made up story. Yeah. That's not true. So my quick take was 27 minutes into the show. I know. I really liked it though. Yeah. Thanks. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're going to talk about monkeys. Yes. And helicopters. 
Well, I thought I would share something um, that... So I finished Prince Harry's book uh, last week, and I, I really, really liked it. Um, I've been talking to my girls a lot. We were talking this weekend a lot about books and about how some people write and how you can write like a good book, but maybe it's not super well written. And my example was like Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series. Like I'm not ripping on Twilight. I read it. I loved it. But it's not like it's the best written thing. It's just a good story, right? And then there's things that are really well written and really highbrow and all these amazing words, but it's not very interesting. And you're like, I don't care. And then there's that middle place where it's like a great story and it's well written. And there's a lot of metaphorical, a lot of analogies, a lot of connections to something much deeper. And I found that, and I'm sure Prince Harry had a ghostwriter, not to put him down, but I doubt. I, it was so good. It was so good. I was like, he had to have help with this. But um, just for fun, let's just, I'm, I have no idea. What to, I just okay, want to hear sure. his voice. Sure. Sing talk with granny. Harry, grandpa's gone. The wind picked up, turned colder. I hunched my shoulders, rubbed my arms regretted the thinness of my white shirt. So that's Prince Harry's voice. Yeah. I just Well, in just that description, just in that 2 seconds. Yeah. I you got you could see him and then regretted the thinness of my shirt. Instead of saying I was cold, mm-hmm. regretted the thinness. That's good writing. I know that this is not where we're going, but I'm about to poke the bear. What if Ooh, somebody's Don't. What if don't. somebody's listening like, "Oh, I'm so you- sick of Prince Harry on this book tour, and he screwed up the royalty. What is your hot take? Sweetie, don't diss the king. <laughs> and don't, 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 well, you, this, there are current uh, king, you can't, I was talking about uh, Elvis Presley. I was, yeah. we were playing a don't game the other night, and I kept king. saying, don't diss the king. What were we playing? We were playing, the, it was like, a, it was the top 100 songs, oh, yeah. and somebody made it, like, it was Basically, it was on YouTube, and it's someone's like the the kind of music they like. Yeah. And so as we were going through, we we're like, "There's a lot of Elton John and Oasis in yeah. here, and there's a lot of Elvis." But every time an Elvis song would come on, yeah, don't we'd diss be the like, king. "Don't diss the king." Uh, that's right. Let's Thank just you. let that be. Okay. <clears throat> I also feel this way with "Don't Diss Prince Harry." I am a big, I am in the wall of like protection for him. I always have been. This isn't just a recent, like, because of Netflix specials. I have a uh, poster on my wall in our bedroom, Todd. It's one of my vision boards in my meditation area. And it was a year before my book came out. So this is two and a half years ago. And um, there is a picture of Meghan and Harry. So there's a small picture on the poster. It's not like you have a poster. No, 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 no. No, it's like a a vision board and things I cut out. Yeah, right. And I cut out a picture of them because... I would look at them and say, if they are willing to to have the upheaval mm-hmm. to, you know, everything that kind of fell apart around them and they chose freedom and mental wellness and a life of what true happiness means to them. I know people will say, but it's not good for, you know, the monarchy or it's not good for this or that or but they chose their freedom. And that's my Yes, Todd will tell you. It's yeah. a word I use quite frequently. A lot of Prince Harry talk. A <laughs> well, lot a lot of freedom, of freedom talk, talk yeah. before Prince Harry. Like, and so he kind of is a symbol of what, what, what I you, believe in. Yeah, what you believe in. And I get it, everybody. For those of you who are monarchy fans and you're worried about William and you're worried about Charles and you're just worried about... I get it. Like, I see all the sides where I understand people's concern. I also don't think William and Charles have the same choices. And if you haven't read the book... And if you don't know 
the history of Harry, you don't understand that he's in a completely different place than they are. Mm-hmm. Meaning like he he was never going to be king. He was never treated the way that everyone else was treated. He was always the scapegoat. He he He's not, I hate to say it this way, but I think he would. He wasn't necessary. You know what I mean? He's the spare. He One thing about being the spare that he says, I'm getting this from him, is you're not just there as the backup just in case something happens to William. You are there if William needs a blood transfusion. You are there if William needs a kidney. You are there if William needs bone marrow. Like, you are the spare in every way. So in other words, the his value is less than. Which was shown in the way he was treated in the press yeah. and why the... Um, why the uh, what, what, the monarchy or this the firm or whatever you want to call the people who are like trying to keep the monarchy alive, including Charles and William and Camilla, why they would kind of sacrifice him to the press. If a, if a bad story was coming out about one of them, a story about Harry would get leaked because it doesn't matter as much if Harry is, is being dragged through the mud. Right. Do you see what I mean? Totally. So he was kind of like, this is, see ya. This sucks. This sucks. And he knew it like... Megan didn't pull him from anything. Mm-hmm. He had one foot out the door forever. He wanted he was to fall in love. looking for a reason to go. Exactly. This is not like he was like, oh, interesting, Megan's life. He was like, I I love L.A. I want out of here. I, I You know, he had a totally different life experience than William did. Sure. And, and the thing is, is I feel bad for William and, and Charles. Sure. They nope. didn't have choices. Right. Let me just say this. The thing we're going to talk about with him is not really about that. Yeah. That's just my side I note. was poking the bear. You were poking the bear because <laughs> I, I said to Todd, if, if people rip on rip Prince Harry around me, watch out. Yeah. Buckle up. Todd sees me sometimes. I don't go after people. I'm, I wouldn't do that. But I, I will say, do you really know this story? Yeah. And if you do, tell me your perspective on it because- mm-hmm. Maybe they'll say something where I'll be like, well, I don't... And and Harry's not innocent. He's made a ton of mistakes. Of course he has. That's the thing is the book is not all... He's not patting himself on the back through the book. He's like, here's the drugs I've done. Here's the experiences I've had. Here's the mistakes I've made. Like he is not... He's a flawed human like all of us. But one of the stories that has nothing to do with any of that is his experience of becoming an Apache uh, helicopter pilot, which it's a very big deal. Mm -hmm. I guess Apache helicopters are super big and expensive and very hard to fly, Mm. and not a lot of people can do it. The reason he was eventually chosen for that is anytime he was basically on the ground with his his crew, what do you call it? His his troop? His team. Troop is like Boy Scouts. Oh. What, what's the military? His battalion? Whatever. His his guys, his, his people, his men and women. Um, <laughs> we're, we're so bad. Yeah. Um, you know, anyway, he... If the Taliban got a read on where he was, then his whole troop was in trouble. Yeah, he's and an attractive target. He's, he's an attractive target. And they're like, okay, we need to get you up in the air, mm-hmm. you know, cut into the chase here. But one thing he talked about is when you're learning to fly an Apache helicopter, the first thing that you have to learn is how to deal with what are called hover monkeys, okay? And what that means is when you're flying a helicopter, and I thought this was so interesting, and I look at helicopters so differently, even though I know Apaches are different, is you have to learn, especially when you're landing, how to balance both sides. And he said when you're learning how to fly it, it can feel like there's a monkey hanging from one side, pulling you down, trying to tip you one way, and then you'll overcorrect and then a monkey will pull you down from the other side. So his trainer, the person who was teaching him inside of the helicopter, called them hover monkeys. Mm, and he's like, you have to figure out how to do this. You have to, and you have to be able to do it under duress. Yeah. So I found that to be, and I told Todd that right before we started, I I like, 
Googled it. Googled all of these things that I'm about to talk to you about. And nobody has written about this. And I don't know how this is not the case. Like, I can't even pull it up from his book. So I'm hoping I'm remembering this right. You know, sometimes I like validation and verification, but I'm just going to go off my memory. So he eventually learns how to do that. But I thought it was really interesting as far as that's what can happen in life. Like, you know, remember the crabs in the pot story yes. that we told where, you know, a lot of times we're all like crabs in a pot. And when you're a crab crawling out of the pot, a lot of times what the other crabs try and do is they try and pull you back in. Like people don't like it when you start to achieve or, or, you know, grow or have new goals because it makes them uncomfortable. And so how do they pull you down? How do the other crabs pull you down? With words, with um, not supporting you, with, you know, avoiding the conversations about your growth. Um, they, they may tell you you can't do it. They may say, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. Your partner may say, you're, you've changed, you're different. There's all these hover monkeys we have in our lives that kind of throw us off. And we have to learn how to recognize, how to understand that they're always going to be there. Because when you're, when you're a helicopter pilot, they're going to be there. Yeah. But how do I manage them? How do I see them for what they are? You were looking something up. I, I just want to confirm the crabs in the pot metaphor, and you totally nailed it. Oh, I did? Okay. Yeah. Did you want to read it, or is it just... Uh, it's a phrase used to describe a phen phenomenon where individuals, particularly those from marginalized or oppressed groups, pull down or harm others in the same group who are trying to escape or improve their situation. Yeah. The metaphor comes from the idea of crabs being placed in a pot, and as one crab tries to climb out, the others pull it down, ensuring that none of the crabs can escape. So, so I kind of feel like hover monkeys are the same thing, and I thought that was the point he was trying to make in the book, which is why I'm surprised that it's no one's well it's a brand new it. book sweetie I and know. you also are zeroing in on a very specific metaphor yes i guess i am and you're a trailblazer for goodness sakes oh goodness sakes and so there's that one and then in the same experience with learning the apache helicopters he also learns about what's called mind squirrels which you know this won't be a surprise to you because we talk about mindfulness all the time but you know mind squirrel like his description is a thought that scurries in one's head won't leave you alone till it's expressed it's annoying it can make a mess of things if it's not like somehow captured and released like it's something you feel like you need to say um and you know the thing that i really appreciated about mind squirrels is it's another way of like saying monkey mind right um can i just play a quick Clip on squirrels. Sure, honey. Speak. Hi there. Look. Did that dog just say hi there? Oh, yes. My name is Doug. I have just met you, and I love you. My master made me this collar. He is a good and smart master, and he made me this collar so that I may talk. Squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Doug the dog, uh -huh. is that right, is one of my favorite characters in any movie of all time yeah i have doug in my meditation area he is my symbol of unconditional love yeah um he is in and it's not an outside thing it's an inside thing i think we should all have doug inside of us someone who's like you're my master and i love you yeah like i that's all i'm here for mm -hmm. you know i i love you um so he's i think he's a wonderful symbol of that um sorry to distract you sweetie no but. i like it i like doug it's good um but so mind squirrels are just what i what i love about the idea of mind squirrels is we all have things where you know monkey mind is kind of like when your mind is going all over the place mind squirrels i feel like are he had to like 
he had to learn about mind squirrels flying a helicopter because he had to figure out how to focus on what was most important Mm -hmm. that your brain is going to think it needs to do a b c d and e but really you need to focus you need to like not allow because he had to learn how to fly the helicopter do all the controls while under duress while trying to pick people up so he's doing like all these super important things all at once but then your brain can be distracted about what about this what about the weather what about this you could be in the future you could be in the past Correct. and you have to be present what if i don't get it right what if i don't plus the hover monkeys are pulling at the you know like think about all the things happening and i think with mind squirrels you know for us we there's the thing about being present and about being able to just do what's in front of you, kind of like what we were talking about with conversation. Like instead of worry about, wait, if I have this conversation, my kid not may not swim in college. Let's not go there. Let's be like, let's just talk about now. How do you feel? What do you need? So, you know, and letting – now the thing about mind squirrels though is that's where they live. Those squirrels live in your mind. So we're not going to like, you know, my dad used to shoot at squirrels with – um, water guns, which kind of used to make Don and I laugh. He would never hurt. Come on, John. He would never hurt an animal. My dad learned how to, he used to have guns when he was young. That was just, you know, central Illinois. Grew That's what the they country. did. And, but he, the first time he shot a bird, he was like, done. He yeah, was like, I can't do working. this. This ain't working. Um, but he would get mad at these squirrels when he was living in Galena and he'd like get them with these big power water guns. We want to do that, but the truth is squirrels live in the trees in Galena. The squirrels are doing exactly (laughs) what they're supposed supposed to be doing. doing. Like where would he just wanted him away from his house. But I'm kind of like, how do we learn to live With with squirrels? And so I think sometimes squirrels can be things that we have not expressed or concerns that we have or worries that we have, or they're things that we haven't quite integrated. Um, you know, like, I think that's the thing of flying a helicopter. You're just trying to integrate a lot of things. I think in for us, who those of us who are not learning to fly helicopters, we need to find a place for everything. You know what I mean? Like Because it makes us feel safe. Yeah. If there's a place for everything, then I feel safe. It, yeah. And, and the way that you're saying it sounds like it's a negative. Yeah. I don't know if you're saying it is a negative. Yeah, I'm saying, uh, yeah, that I, I actually am because I'll be okay as soon as all these pieces of my life are where I feel like they should be, Ah. which is a recipe for unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's almost impossible to make that be. Of course. And I was kind of looking at it from the positive, but I think both have a place. And I was thinking about the story that I was telling a lot at the service this weekend to people is that my mom who just passed away, I think where I'm at right now, my mind squirrels are my mom over the last two years was one person Mm -hmm. who was dealing with dementia. So she was a very different person. And then as I was getting ready for the service and going through all the pictures and we were going through all the videos and just having all of our conversations about the awesomeness of my mom, I'm like, oh, she was this person and she would laugh all the time and she would do this and this. Not, I hadn't forgotten it. It just had kind of been set down because- Unfamiliar or just not recent. Not recent. Yeah. And so now I am trying to integrate Mm -hmm. all of these pieces of my mom and find a place for all of them. And so in that way, I see it as these my all these places where my mind is really squirrely. I think it's okay because I'm trying to kind of put things back together and find a place for her. Yeah, integrate is probably not the right word, but like re-put the puzzle together of your mom's life because the puzzle looked different the last two years. And now that she's gone you can kind of reassemble the puzzle yeah. of who your mom was. Yes, as a whole. As a whole. Rather it, than a it, piece. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to do that because when, 
you know, she was, you know, in the hospital and sick. Like, it's hard to think about all the other stuff right. because it's right there in front of you. It, it's not the reality. And, and that would have been a waste of energy. Right. I need to be with this person. Right. That this takes is you out of presence. Me. Exactly. And I think that it's the same as what I was saying to you, what we were talking about before is sometimes when our life, when we're like, is this really what we want to be doing? Are these the things we want to do? That is also a bunch of mind squirrels that are trying to be you know, find a place is it's like, do we need to let go of some things? Do we need to reintegrate some things? Do we need to find a new path, you know? And so the, I think the interesting thing, the paradox of mind squirrels of they can, they can be overwhelming and we can look at them as like a monkey mind kind of thing. Or sometimes there's something that keeps coming up because we need to kind of figure out how to process it. Yeah. So in the way I described it, it was distractions. Yes, which is part of it. In the way you're describing it, it's more like learning opportunities yeah, or and, reframing opportunities. And maybe not being so frustrated that something keeps coming up because mm. maybe that's because something needs to change. Sure. Maybe you're trying... And, and I see as far as my own grief, I see it as a natural process. I remember doing this with my dad because mm. my dad was also very... Uh, not well at the end of his life. And then the first memories I had of him after he passed is I was like, oh, the 40 year old dad who was like working every day and mm -hmm. was like always in a good mood. Like I had to remember all these people and put them back together. It's as much a part of who he was that as he was the last 17 years of heart disease. Absolutely. Yeah. And then as you pointed out last week is the life he had even before yes. I came around. Like our parents, you know, are these full people and as are our children, as are our partners, as are our our careers, there's all these pieces to it. It's hard to think of uh, when we when we engage in a relationship of a person who's already a fully formed fully formed adult, yeah. like our parents. Mm -hmm. It's weird to think about them as little kids. I know, like they were little kids, and it's like, duh, of course they were. But like, no, like it's so foreign to me to think of my mom as like a seven year old girl. Well. I have a picture in my closet that my aunt gave to me about seven years ago of my mom as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then I have a picture in the family room of my dad with his mom and he's holding her hand. Mm -hmm. He's like five years old. Yeah. And I have those up for that reason. Yeah. Like that it is this... Uh, remembering that they had all sorts of dreams and desires and needs yeah. and all of those things just like we do. Yeah. And I don't think our children the age they are should worry about that stuff yet. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like when you get older and you start to realize your parent is like a human being. Yeah. I think teenagers start to notice that. Um, they start to be like, oh, my parents are not as perfect as I thought yeah. they were. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about the deity that we were in our I children's know. lives when all we did was food, you know, feed them and clothe them and keep give them heat in the house. And then they realize we're just a couple of people trying <laughs> our best to figure this out. Um, and I, and it's not like one day they arrive at that. It's like little teeny yeah. tiny pieces. Disappointments, mm -hmm. unpredictability, things that happen in life that they have to learn how to deal with. We can't be perfect. And again, remember, you know, Winnicott's idea of the good enough mother um, is not just about it's okay if you make mistakes. It's okay. He's also saying it's not great for the kid yeah. if you don't make mistakes mm -hmm. because then their life is this perfection ideal. Sure. And they need to know how to navigate challenges. So the good enough mother is it benefits on both sides. Right. It lets you off the hook a little bit, and it also helps you. Teaches your kid. them adversity. Exactly. If you if you try to navigate your life through a lens of perfection, and everything is meant to be, and there's no space for 
anger, fear, sadness, joy, a whole range of emotions, you're not doing your kid no. much of a service. No. And actually, it has been modified, uh, Winnicott's um, concepts to good enough parent mm. because we don't want to, we want to be inclusive to all genders because mm. this is true for, you know. Sweetie, don't be mentioning anything that doesn't include <laughs> me and my penis. Moms and dads. Yeah. Demand action. Yes. No, it's just moms demand. Yeah, and that's okay too. That's okay. It's okay, yeah, guys. That's the, that's we, okay. That we can we do it. We don't have to have it. Oh, we we don't have to be included in everything. Right. But and I, people are like, "What are you talking about? Like, pick up a freaking history book. <laughs> just pick up a history book. We're, it's a bunch of dudes. <laughs> All right. So let's create a little space for some equity. Yeah. And the reason I do like good enough parenting is like my, you know, when I'm talking to my social, you know, social work students about. Um, Winnicott's ideas, a lot of my students were raised by grandparents. They were raised by cousins. They were raised by, you know, other caregivers, foster care system. So I like to say good enough parenting. Sure. You know what I mean? Because yeah, I friendlier. think it, it, it's, yeah. I get it. Um, anything else, my no, darling? No, that's it. I would I would say, say as a, you know, I don't really always talk about the books I'm reading. Uh, well, I guess I do. I But usually I'm reading nonfiction, like self-help stuff. I would suggest reading or listening to Harry's book. Yeah. Um, if you're carried you through last week, which was it, a tough week. Well, and here's the thing. That's what's so interesting. Two things I will say, and I'm not really done with them yet. Usually it takes me a while to put these things down. I, uh, Anderson Cooper's podcast. Um, and what, what is it called? I want to look it up and it, and it, it's hold on everybody. So I, it was, yeah, I'm just making stuff. Must I, I just called it the Anderson Cooper show because <laughs> that's all there is. I would be like, do you guys listen to the Anderson Cooper show? Anyway, I started listening to him about a month ago. Um, it was when it was a couple weeks before we went on Christmas break, and oh, oh my gosh, like that was at the right when my mom was going into hospice and everything was like coming up, and I could not ask for a better podcast about grief. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it doesn't matter if you are grieving right now, like I was or am. Um, it's just so poignant. Yeah. And not only does it give you an insight to him personally, but just all of these different ways that people experience grief. So all there is, Anderson Cooper, that's a podcast. And then Harry's book was so meaningful to me because the whole thing was about his mom mm. and about losing his mom. And I don't mean like he talked about the actual act of the the car crash the whole time. He, every choice, everything he did or didn't do was because of this experience that he had at 12 years old. And so it really, I felt like, I felt like I was with him. Do you know what I mean? Like that whole idea of, you know, the parent. And so anyway, I just, those, my two grief recommendations. Uh, A few other things regarding Team Zen. I forgot to say, um, while supplies last, I'm going to send any new Team Zen members that sign up uh, an I Listen t-shirt or something from her. What about a, what about a hat like you have on right now? Do Uh, we have any other stuff? Or a winter hat. They're so cute. Todd wears his all the time. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see it. Um, and then uh, what else? Jeremy Kraft. He's a bald-headed beauty. He does painting and remodeling throughout the Chicagoland area. And sweet Jeremy came this weekend to my mom's service, by the way, everybody. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy. I feel like I spent two seconds with you. He's a sweetheart. But he's such a nice man. He's an honest contractor. Like, yes. that should be his motto. He's honest contractor. Who, like, cares about our family. Yeah. Like, what a great guy. He's a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have any work in the Chicagoland area, give Jeremy a call. And then uh, don't forget about Men Living. I'm the executive directory. We create spaces for guys to connect vulnerably and authentically. So check that out. And um, we have a Zen Talk. When do we have a Zen Talk? Wednesday. 
Wednesday? It was supposed to be Tuesday, but yeah, yeah it got Wednesday. changed to Wednesday. So maybe if you join Teams in the next two days, you can get on a Zen Talk, and Kathy and I will help you support yourselves and each other and yeah. all that good stuff. If you're at all curious about Teams and join for a month and see. Yeah. Like like Ted said, you don't have to stay, yeah. but my goodness, we're it's just so cool. Yeah, we love it. Teams we spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. Keep talking, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are always grateful for your support. If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen pre-ordering Kathy's Zen Parenting book or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com. If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we will talk to you again next week.